Hello and welcome to Interpreting India, a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. I'm Anirudh Burman and I will be guest hosting this episode of Interpreting India. On February 1, the India government introduced the union budget on the floor of the Lok Sabha. This budget was introduced in the context of an economic downturn that many are calling structural in nature. Stakeholders were interested in seeing what steps the government would take to address this issue while maintaining fiscal discipline at the same time. In this episode of Interpreting India, we aim to analyze the Union Budget 2020, its approach towards addressing India's economic slowdown, and its larger implications for the Indian economy. To discuss the budget, I am joined today by my colleague Suyash Rai, who is a fellow at Carnegie India. His research focuses on the political economy of economic reforms and the performance of public institutions in India. Suyash, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you, Anirudh, for having me on the show. To start off, can you reflect on the context in which this union budget was presented and the expectations from the budget? So, as you know, there's been a slowdown GDP growth rate. There have been six consecutive quarters of uh, growth slowing down. And the most recent quarter for which we have the data, the July-September quarter, the GDP growth was at 4.6%, which is very low. And uh, <coughs> even uh, if you look at the components of GDP, other than the government expenditure, or the consumption expenditure financed by government, all other components have been growing at a very slow rate. That's the main context. Other than that, uh, in December and January, consumer price inflation had increased quite significantly. It was about 7.4, 7.6% in these two months. And that's well above the inflation tar- target that is given to the Monetary Policy Committee. So we are going through a economic slowdown and inflation seems to be picking up. So it was a very uh, difficult context to be presenting a budget, which, as you know, in India is a <coughs> master document for policy pronouncements. Right. It's not just about the bookkeeping of the government, but also uh, creating sentiments, building confidence in the economic strategy of the government. These were the expectations. And that was the context in which the budget was presented. Right. And I think in this context, the finance minister presented an unusually long budget. What are the two, three major takeaways you would like us to think about or to reflect on? The main takeaway from the budget uh, is that the government is trying to achieve fiscal expansion while also facing a very difficult fiscal situation. So... Because the economy is slowing down, it seems that the government is mindful of the need for it to spend more uh, and uh, boost up the economy. So as I was just saying that the only component of the GDP that is growing rapidly is the government finance consumption expenditure. For the rest, all other components, private consumption expenditure, capital formation, uh, other net exports, all those are not growing very rapidly. So government is mindful of that and wants to create uh, uh, expansionary fiscal policy and implement it. Uh, but it faces a very difficult time. Uh, so in 2018-19, there was a big shortfall on re- tax collections. Compared to the budgeted tax collection, the uh, actual tax collection was less, much less. 18% was the projected tax collection growth and they got only 9%. And 2019-20, it's been even more difficult. The gross tax revenues have grown at only 3% year on year. So that's the main source of uh, stress, fiscal stress. 
uh, other than that every year you have something's going well something's going badly but in spite of this difficult fiscal situation from 2018-19 to 2019-20 as they reported they managed to achieve a fiscal expansion of 12.2% gdp to 13.2% of gdp so the total government expenditure was 12.2% of gdp in 2018-19 and it is now reported with the revised estimate at 13.2% of gdp in 2019-20 and uh, there is now again budgeted to increase to 13.53% of gdp in 2020-21 which is the coming year for which the budget was presented now if you look at the 2019-20 uh, fiscal expansion by substantial at right? 1% of gdp it was made possible by a few things which are one off i mean you can't do them all the time uh three three key factors contributed to it first rbi gave an gave an extraordinary high dividend to the government and that was basically a, a conflict between rbi and, uh, and the central government on how it should how much economic capital the rbi should keep there was a committee set up to look into it and there was some resolution of that conflict and the one outcome was that rbi gave a very large dividend to uh, to the government this year the second uh, big factor that enabled this kind of fiscal expansion is that uh, you know that in centers tax collection part of it goes to states now uh, in any given year the uh state the center only comes to know at the end of the year how much is its total <laughs> tax collection in actual tax collection while during the course of the year it keeps uh, sharing the tax with the states yeah. and what happens is that if the actual tax collection in a given year is lower than the tax estimate uh, the revised estimate for that year then in the following year the government uh, gives the uh, state less or more depending on how the actual tax collection is has been to adjust and in 2019-20 there is about 59000 crore rupees less given to the states to adjust for 1819 tax collection shortfall because the actual tax collection in 2018-19 was much less than what was reported in the revised estimate stage so that freed up a large about 0.4% of <laughs> gdp roughly of uh, fiscal space for them it's like uh, one off and uh, that helped and the third factor that helped is they they invoked the escape clause in the uh, fiscal responsibility and budget management act which is the budget law for india which allows the government on certain grounds to uh, uh breach the fiscal deficit limit that it has set for itself and this time the limit they had set for was 3.3% of gdp but they have actually reported 3.8% of gdp in the revised estimates and uh, they have added a statement a three paragraph statement saying that this has been done because of structural reforms such as the corporate tax cut that was given last year so late last year they had uh, restructuring the corporate tax rates and uh, that has cost them something and they are saying that because of that they have expanded they will do this year but if you were to look forward and whether in 2021 they will be able to achieve the fiscal expansion i don't know because uh, these uh, two of these factors are one off they are not going to repeat themselves again so that was one big takeaway trying to achieve fiscal expansion in the in the midst of a fiscal crisis couple of other takeaways uh, one is that there are certain budgetary practices that had questionable budgetary practices that had crept into the budget making process in the recent years especially from 2017 18 onwards which have now been normalized so let me explain so what government has been doing very extensively from 2017 18 onwards is to use extra budgetary resources for its own expenditure so these are two types of resources one is that the some government owned firm some government promoted firm public sector enterprise 
issues bonds, which are fully serviced by government. Mm-hmm. Interest as well as principal is paid by government, but it doesn't sit on the government's books. Right. It, it sits, sits on, on the, the public sector enterprise, <laughs> enterprises right. books. And it is used, the money is used for uh, payment for Pratham Mantri, Awas Yojana, Swachh Bharat Yojana, other government schemes, subsidy schemes. So there is nothing to do with the, the public sector enterprises, business or I mean commercial activities. So they have been using that as a way to pay for schemes. The other is uh, there's been a lot of lending happening from the small savings uh, fund, which is the postal savings fund to public sector enterprises for again government subsidy or services schemes and uh, th- th- these are the two types of primarily extravagant resources that have been used more extensively from 2017-18 onwards and now in the budget speech I heard it and I read it also they made it more formal and it seems to have been normalized that we will continue to do this so what does normalization mean how do you now they have added an annex to the budget speech Okay. Specifically listing out the extra-budgetary resources. Okay. And uh, they have also, uh, for example, uh, in food subsidy, what used to happen until last year is that they, in the beginning of the year, they used to put a large amount in the budget. During the course of the year, they used to release less. And the remaining used to be borrowed by the Food Corporation of India okay. Uh, okay. from the small savings fund primarily. From this year, they have put the budget amount also as less. So they have reduced the budget amount itself. And it's, they have just put in the budget itself that a food corporation will borrow from the small saving fund to pay for the food subsidy. Because Food Corporation uh, of India is the uh, organization that implements essentially the food subsidy because it procures the grains at some price and releases at less lower price. And the difference is primarily, the main, main, mainly that's the food subsidy in India. So that's the second <laughs> big takeaway. Take and uh, the third takeaway is more on uh, the fiscal marksmanship that I think year after year, we are getting the uh, fiscal marksmanship wrong, that we put some numbers in terms of in the budget about how much we'll collect on taxes, how much of the non-tax revenues we'll collect. Year after year, we get the spectrum auction <laughs> project budgets wrong because uh, the the we're not able to foresee what's going to happen. But even in tax, we're not able to, uh, even not even the same ballpark. There's a huge difference between what is budgeted and what is actual, actually realized. We also underachieve on disinvestment. Uh, yeah, so year. disinvestment is another big uh, problem in which we are not able to, I mean, project in the beginning. And there is that's in the nature of the beast itself. Uh, there is a process of doing the uh, tra- transaction which we are not able to uh, manage during the course of the year. We make some projections at the beginning, but we are not able to uh, uh, meet at the end. But on that, one point that I also took away from the budget on disinvestment is that because this is a tough time, it's a fiscally stressful time, uh, it has created some impulse in the government to try and make big ticket transactions. Right. So you, as you know, they've been trying to sell Air India. I mean, they've not succeeded yet, but they're, they're trying. They've also recently approved a large public sector corporation like Bharat Petroleum, Container Corporation. They are very big ticket transactions. If they go through, they'll be very large transactions. Right. They have also announced uh, listing and kind of partial disinvestment of uh, life insurance corporation. And these kind of things you couldn't have done at a normal fiscal right. time. So that's another, I would say, takeaway perhaps. So on the issue of fiscal marksmanship, what do you think is driving this? Why is the government getting it wrong consecutive years? What's the issue? I, I don't know. I think that that question, the people in the budget division can answer well. But uh, one part of it has got to do with GST. Uh, it's a new tax. Uh, it's a big reform that is happening and it will take its time to stabilize. 
and it is very difficult to make projections on gst collection at the beginning of the year so part of it is got to do with that but we are also getting it wrong in other types of taxes so direct taxes also and i think there is something going wrong in understanding of how economic activity is going projection of economic activity because ultimately taxation is on income and consumption so you, if you are not able to make good projections on how in, income and consumptions are going uh you you will end up getting your tax projections wrong uh on spectrum again it, it seems like there is some kind of a disconnect between even a elementary understanding of what's happening in the telecom sector and what is put in the budget they have put a very large target this year right. more than a trillion rupees 1.3 trillion rupees for spectrum auction and you know what's happening in the <laughs> telecom sector these firms are in a deep uh, financial stress and how will they will do raise so the i think the basic common sensical application of uh, i mean uh, understanding and application of what is happening in the economy is missing in uh, making the projections and that's then leading to these kind of problems and it's also tied to the problem of extra budgetary resources that even if you get a projections wrong you are able to find ways to uh, get money in into these schemes and other things that you have committed for because your sense of the hard budget constraint is not quite there because you put some budget at the beginning bay and put some inflated expectation on tax collection and other kind of collections but during the course of the year you were wrong it that would be painful otherwise but now that you can move part of that expenditure to off budget um, uh, extra budgetary resources that sense of hard budget constraint is also missing so there is less discipline overall in the budget management system and that makes it easier to for you to get away with poor fiscal management right Uh, the other question i had was just to come back to this issue of borrowing from small savings funds do you think there'll be some long term adverse consequence on the fund itself because there's a lot of borrowing from the small saving fund taking place so uh, because the borrowing is uh, be, be, uh, most of it is going to uh, either governments or or public sector enterprises and when it's going to public sector enterprises there is an understanding it seems that over time government will keep making good on the promise to pay the public sector enterprise for uh, incurring the bill so it will continue the system will continue for the foreseeable future it's not going out into uh, other domains but as you see the there is a shortfall in the small savings fund there is a more than a trillion rupees of gap between the total value of the investment that the fund has and the total liability that it is and it's been expanding year after year that shortfall has been expanding some day this issue will come to a head and some government will have to put up some money it's not a given because uh, it's a public account and it's not a given that the, it's the government's liability i mean uh, this uh, they, it's included in the public debt this uh, liability on it but it is not a given that at some point government has to put in this 1 lakh crore rupees and it will have to make good on it it will have to make a decision some day on it but that that shortfall is expanding and year after year it's been just kind of can is being kicked down the road so we are effectively just pushing out the burden onto a, a future parliament or a future government yeah future generations yeah coming back to this idea of providing some kind of a stimulus in the context of the economic downturn this year's budget also it increased the government's capital expenditure by about 20% that's what they are uh, estimating and at the same time they've tried to reduce income tax slabs so is this going to be effective or do you think there was scope to do something different or something more so uh, on the capital expenditure it's true that they have uh, achieved a modest increase uh, so in from 1819 to 1920 there has been a small increase in the capital expenditure the percentage of gdp so year on year percentage would make sense you have to look at the uh, normalize it through the gdp 
So it was 1.6% of GDP, uh, 1890, 1920, they've got to more than 1.7% of GDP, uh, as far as I remember. But uh, if you look at the overall situation, that capital expenditure is a very small part of the government budget. I mean, it's much smaller than it should be in a country like India. We need to invest much more in building capital assets. Even in defense, we should be spending much more on defense modernization, putting more on buying weapons and building more <laughs> technical capabilities. In infrastructure, we should be putting in money. Government has expressed its intent to do that, but it's not putting actually serious money. They in this year they have achieved a modest increase. That that's for sure. It 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 should help if it's implemented properly and so on and so forth. On the income tax side, I am much more optimistic about this new structure. I mean, how and what kind of impact it will have. Okay. So they've given an op- option to individuals and. Uh, if you have any savings and if you invest those savings in tax exemption exempt avenues and where deductibles are there then you will be able to benefit uh, from the old system right. more or less i mean depends on your specific financial situation but if you don't have any savings and and you basically end up spending everything then this new structure might help you more mm-hmm. then you will end up paying less tax and that additional money that is in your hand may help Boost some of the consumption expenditure at the lower middle class and I mean uh, level. That was the kind of uh, and up, uh, middle class, lower middle class level. Those kind of incomes, it will help you a little bit uh, on the consumption side. But it it's a very empirical question. We have to see. I mean, we don't observe sitting here uh, how people will choose between these two different uh, options that they have been given. Right. This also presumes that at least part of the downturn is because of a slowdown in consumption. that if you put more money in the consumers hands you are going to see some kind of a revision or a uptake of the economy yeah there is a slowdown in consumption it also shows up in the gdp numbers it's been also been reported by different sectors uh from fmcg to automobiles to various sectors that their sales have been falling and gdp also you see there is a slowdown in the rate of growth of private consumption until recently it was one of the drivers of uh, uh, growth right. uh only government consumption expenditure and private consumption expenditure were driving growth exports and uh, investments are not uh, picking up but now even that has slowed down so they are trying to put some more money in people's hands so they can spend more so on the issue of uh, this uh, fiscal expansion what do you think is the long term sustainability to be able to do this you pointed to the fact that they've already used the escape clause in the frbm do you think if the economy does not start improving sufficiently within a year or two that there is increased scope for fiscal expansion or will a very radically different approach have to be taken yeah so there's only so much you can do with the fisc because you have a lot of commitments that are anyway going and did not that you the marginal space to reallocate resources to i mean new avenues is limited especially if you take politics into account for example you can do some expenditure substitution from subsidies to say capital expenditure right you, you can but politically is that feasible i mean governments are finding it very hard in india to do that although there's a lot of evidence to show that a lot of subsidies that go I mean, not just the major subsidies like food petroleum <laughs> fertilizer subsidies but also other subsidies that go into railways and all, a lot of it goes to people who are can actually afford right. to pay and should be able to pay we should, should not subsidize the consumption but still we are finding it very difficult uh, politically governments are not able to do much about those so that's one pathway through which fisc can do more you can do substitution of expenditure while not increasing the overall pie but doing more with that but if you want to talk about if the economy doesn't pick up then 
can you just keep borrowing more and spending more? Today, for example, our primary deficit is about 0.7% of GDP in 2019-20. That's the amount we're borrowing to repay debt. Primary deficit is borrowing to repay debt. So it's not borrowing to uh, make a <laughs> capital expenditure or anything like that. It's just borrowing to repay debt. That is not sustainable beyond a point. I mean, you will get into uh, debt sustainability problems, especially now that you have an inflation uh, targeting regime in which you can't just inflate away your debt. The, you'll end up at some point, maybe not in five years or 10 years, at some point you'll end up meeting a, a moment of reckoning. But I, I look at it more on a I mean, short to medium term basis. If you look at the overall household financial savings in India, most of them are currently being cornered by either central or state government or by public sector enterprises. Very little is left for private sector to use. And we are a capital account, <laughs> capital control intensive economy. We have many, many capital controls. But it's not a free flow of capital. So if there is a problem of a constant sum game here, if the governments and the public sector enterprises corner so much of the household financial savings. There's very little left. There's a little left for people investment. to borrow and invest yeah. and their uh, cost of borrowing will certainly go up. And you see that. You see the, whenever government uh, expands its fiscal deficit or it borrows more on budget or off budget, the bond yields go up. So one more question I wanted to ask you about was this whole idea of talking about a number of schemes or projects without a clear sense of what is going to be the fiscal outlay or the expenditure impact. For example, this year's budget has starting a study in India program for foreign students. It has some stuff about, say, building best practices on disaster resilience. And it's not clear from the budget what amounts are being allocated for it, what is the desired outcome and so on. What is your take on this? So there are two... uh... Parts to it. One is that the budget speech is often used for making policy announcements, which may or may not have uh, fiscal consequences. I don't like that practice because budget should be about budget. Mm-hmm. Budget speech should be about the budget, but they do use it. The other problem is more to do with the fiscal management uh, approach that we have, especially expenditure management approach. We have this approach that if a problem comes up from some department or a ministry or some proposal comes, we create a small scheme. We put 50 crore, right. 20 crore rupees into it. And we say, okay, let's get it started and then we'll see how it goes. That that approach has led to a plethora of schemes. We have now 685 central sector schemes, which are fully paid for by government and 30 centrally sponsored schemes, which are, I mean, uh, paid for by government, but also shared by state governments as a sharing uh, of expenditure. And it's just, if you look at many of these schemes, they're very small schemes focused on some specific problems. Some of them have been going on for years. Some of them have been around for decades. Mm-hmm. They've been renamed, uh, put into some umbrella, but still they exist. Yeah. This approach to expenditure, usually, I mean, in my sense, they, it betrays a sense, lack of strategy mm-hmm. on what the government is trying to achieve through expenditure. And in at a level of development that we have in India, we need to be very careful about expenditure prioritization. We have a huge amount of demand on expenditure for solving real public good problems, you know, uh, real market, other market failures addressed on externalities, uh, uh, overcoming information asymmetry problems, real problems of market failures are remaining unaddressed. And in the process, we are trying to create these cute little schemes on this or that, make sure that Indian students, uh, foreign students can come and study in India. You have some scheme for that. Some Indian students can go abroad and work their scheme for that. Every social problem, it seems a very political, economic problem. There's some little government scheme <laughs> that can solve it. And it becomes, a, over a period of time, it adds up. And there are lots of such schemes where questionable outcomes, mm. even the questionable outputs, 
and go worse it you not even very question of inputs also whether there is a theory that that those inputs lead to some change or not right. and it will be good at least to look at many of these from a fresh pair of eyes and say what do we want to achieve with them over medium term say 5 years and have some kind of a sunset clause built in the schemes that they will be shut down after a point and then uh, if they will be continued only if there is a real evidence that they are working and all this machinery is missing missing right it's more of a iterative process which happens year after year after year mm-hmm. you look at last year's allocation you try to increase it there's some negotiation mm-hmm. but the strategic approach is missing and the consequence of that is this 685 central sector yeah. even there's to be more than 1000 by the way now some of them have merged together and now we have 685 wow. so we are getting better only on paper because merging the scheme doesn't mean that the schemes right. are less the work right. continues it's just that they right. have got fewer uh, headings that's right. on a related issue uh, i was also struck by the fact that pensions in the uh, are increasing at such a huge pace in the defense budget what's going on there i mean it's become a fairly large component of the overall defense budget over the past few years yeah so uh, if you look at when uh, so, uh, so this uh, there is a larger trend of pensions increasing there's demographic issues and all behind that but there was one uh, decision the one rank one pension decision that was taken and after that there has been a further an acceleration in the increase in pension outflow of the government and it's far outpaced the increase in expenditure on defense overall yes, so i wrote about this also that the overall defense expenditure is growing in single digits some 7 8% while the pension defense pensions are growing at from 17 18% percent, right. something like something right. like that if you look at the last 5 years the average uh, the component average annual growth rate so and because the government has taken uh, a decision to restructure defense pensions altogether on the principle of one rank one pension and that will have its fiscal consequences and my sense is i've not seen the details on it but the way the policy was set up it was going to lead to a uh, increase in pension outflow and a large part of this increase is coming from that it seems like a big step back because for the larger bureaucracy we introduced a national pension system a while ago to kind of rationalize our pension liabilities so that we could actually not be in this situation for the rest of the bureaucracy yeah i don't want to relitigate the orop debate we, 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 i mean we've had it and it it went one particular way uh, but it is true that uh, for Uh, the entire bureaucracy outside of the armed forces uh you have defense defined benefit defined contribution uh, pen- pension which is contributory government co contributes and depending on the market returns you will get a pension it's also true of the security forces which is outside of the military paramilitary forces have defined contribution right. police forces have uh, so all of them have uh, that pension and here we have got a defined benefit pension which is now also uh, added to an orop principle to it right So I want to move on to another theme in this year's budget which was about building trust around tax administration and the uh, criminal justice system in the economic uh, sector. And there were two or three big announcements made. One was the implementation or the introduction of a taxpayer charter that would be prepared by the tax department. The other was a scheme to reduce tax litigation, income tax litigation that is currently stuck in uh tribunals and courts and the third was about rationalizing criminal offenses in the companies act so can we go through these uh e- each of them quickly just to see what it's actually going to do or whether it's actually going to have the intended benefit so for example the taxpayer charter i think the announcement is that there'll be a charter made by the income tax department 
which will kind of constrain the behavior of tax officials yeah what do you think of that so what does the charter do a charter primarily achieves uh, two purposes which are basically two sides of the same coin one purpose is that clarifies to the taxpayer what rights do they enjoy with respect to the department and the other side of the same coin is that it also holds the account department accountable to the taxpayer about how they should up their game to uphold these rights now what is the situation today we already have charters so cbic for the indirect tax we have a charter uh, cbdt also has a charter it's not like the charters are not there and the uh, some they some of them actually include if you look at it uh, specific deadlines for assessments and uh, uh, investigate for uh, for responding to taxpayers assessments and all of that and uh, what this budget is doing the what the speech says is that they're putting it in the law which is the they have amended the income tax act uh, to put the charter there but if you look at it more closely and i went and looked into the finance bill which is proposed it it's just one sentence and it says that the cbdt which is the authority that's uh, apex authority for direct taxes is going to uh, ad- adopt and implement a charter that's all it says now just think about it that if it's totally left to cbdt to adopt and implement it then how is it going to be different from the current charter right. if you want to up it a little bit and you want to increase the stakes and increase the accountability you have to put at least some basic principles of the charter in the law itself right. because that law cannot be amended by cbdt while the charter can be amended and changed by cbdt on its own will so i think from a design point of view it's not a good uh, design to make sure that this principal agent problem is managed and taxpayers also need some mechanism to be able to enforce, enforce this charter exactly yeah. that the law does not say the the amendment amended income tax act is not going to say what are the penalties what are the, the avenues for for seeking penalties against the department if the charter is uh, not followed okay. it's like basically given as something that is nice to have uh, the other scheme was the vivad se vishwas scheme which was a kind of amnesty scheme where you basically uh, the tax department waives off the penalty and interest on the litigated tax assessment if you agree to pay the tax uh and the rationale given was that there are about 4 point lakh uh cases in the currently stuck in litigation uh, related to income tax uh, direct taxes and that we need to a ease the burden of the courts but also be be able to collect some of this revenue so do you think this is actually going to lead to more trust within the system and also meet the intended uh, objectives of the government so uh, if you have an amnesty scheme like this uh, it could help some people who are tired of going through the litigation they want to use it and they want to just close the case and move on with their lives it will help them it will also help people who are wrong people who have actually done uh, tried to evade taxes and then they come and they find a uh, cheaper <laughs> way to uh, solve the problem they just pay the taxes and move on i mean their wrong doing was uh, kind of uh, didn't get punished with penalties and so on and so forth but if you are actually uh, law abiding and you are stuck in a dispute which is actually not a, a reasonable dispute i don't think this is a fair way to uh, uh, resolve the problem so if you look at the data on tax disputes uh, government is heavily litigious if uh, if in a, a lower court if in an appellate tribunal 
there is a uh, you, the government loses it very often appeals they've cha- they've changed the thresholds for them recently couple of times 2019 and 2018 they changed the thresholds for appeals but they're still very very litigious that's just one part of it the other is they lose vast majority of the cases okay in the income tax avenue tribunal which is basically a tribunal comprised of i mean large number of the people who sit there are ex revenue officials right. it's not the most adversarial of the tribunals for the government's point of view government loses 3/4 of the cases so it is the government that initiates a lot of these disputes and because there is a incentive to initiate and continue disputes with the with the taxpayers and unless government clean clean cleans up its own house and act and make sure that litigation is based on some i mean serious ground and there has to be a serious kind of evidence that somebody is done a wrong doing just government losing 3/4 the cases in a tribunal which is very friendly overall in terms of just the potentially i don't know how they they may be acting independently but at least if i look at the constitution of the tribunal i would say that this is not a adversarial and very ad, uh, very hostile kind of a tribunal for government is a point of uh, to be to be considered and amnesty like this disproportionately favors those who actually did wrong doing because they they get a cheaper way out while if you actually have a wrong tax demand on you and you are fighting against that why would you settle so what you are basically saying is that the amount of litigation we are seeing is a symptom it's a symptomatic cause of what is actually going yeah, on there are underlying problems in the yeah. way the laws are written the right. way the laws are implemented the way government makes tax demands the way they it, it chooses to uh, file an appeal or not right and the third part was a much broader undertaking which was to try and rationalize some of the offenses under the companies act yeah that's a very good idea we have not seen the details on it yet right. so we i mean they've said that they will consider and review and then make the uh, appropriate amendments to the companies act but i think it's a it's very much required you in recent times you've seen a lot of you and try on criminalization of the csr related offenses for example mm-hmm. uh, there is a general problem in india of trying to criminalize a lot of economic activities mm-hmm. which uh, could be just civil offenses you can just put a penalty and move on you know compoundable make it compoundable but right. if they start down this road there's a lot of clean up to be done <laughs> it will be good to have it done so you can actually make them civil offenses just pay a penalty and move on thank you sirish before we end we just wanted to ask you what are you currently reading that you would like to recommend to our listeners so presently i'm reading this uh, book uh, backstage by mr montek singh alowalia who has been a very important feature of a policy landscape he's a policy economist who's been around in indian systems in the late 70s so i'm reading his story about india's reforms and why th- things were done the way they were done right so interesting book thank you sir thank you for listening to this episode of interpreting india a podcast presented every two weeks by carnegie india For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.